ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. They were humiliated. They were upset because they had paid for so many years keeping up their side of the bargain, hoping to be able to have the funerals covered once they passed away. And for them to be upended like this so easily, it just kind of felt like a massive uh, kick in the guts for them. Financial support for victims of a collapsed Aboriginal funeral fund and calls for a nationwide ban on the use of spit hoods. Of course, as well, my anger is toward the fact that there is ample research, there is ample evidence now. There are police unions, there are correctional officers who support these bans in New South Wales, in South Australia, and indeed across Australia in their own workplaces. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Mark Holden is a young lawyer who's already made significant tracks in helping many thousands of Indigenous people conned into dodgy funeral insurance and other financial scams. Mark helped take on a funeral insurance organisation that had managed to evade the law and regulation for 30 years. He helped regulators with their actions against this outfit that aggressively targeted First Nations people of all ages. And when the mob came to Mark for help, they realised the company had been posing as an Indigenous business, but wasn't. This company even sold funeral insurance for children, often collecting more in premiums from people than the cost of a funeral, and that's just the start. Mark's a senior solicitor and policy advocate with the Financial Rights Legal Centre and was previously an investigator at the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Mark Holden, welcome to Speaking Out. It's lovely to be here, Larissa. Now, before we get started on these issues that you've worked so hard on, let's just set the scene and find out a little bit more about you. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what shaped your worldview, your sense of social justice. What were your influences? So I, I grew up in um, the northwest of uh, Sydney in around uh, Carlingford and Napping Way. So that was like John Howard's uh, district. So it was kind of great to be able to vote him out at that point in time. Um, <laughs> I kind of like when I was in high school and I was reading some uh, interesting studies about First Nations people, about the low mortality rate, the injustices, the targeting by police. Uh, and I just kind of feel like, well, can't I change that? And so even though I was terrible at all my other high school subjects, I was almost, I was the best at uh, legal studies. And my mum, God bless her, had convinced me to go and start a uh, law degree. And funny enough, she was also doing a law degree at the same time, as well as my brother uh, at the UNSW. But I chose not to go with them because it would be quite awkward for three, uh, for three of us all together in the same class. So I kind of thought... Let's go to UTS because uh, they're different and they're a lot more streetwise. I like them that way. A, a, law, a law degree is a very small piece of the puzzle to trying to be able to find these solutions. It, and it really does require a broader range of skills, but also to work with other people with other skills to be able to come together to find the solutions. And, and so after HCCC, I then went to work at Financial Rights Legal Center where 
not only was I working with other lawyers, but also I was working with other with financial counselors. And I was thinking, financial counselors, who are these, who are these mob? And they turned out to be some of the greatest uh, people I've ever come across, where they help people get through their finances. They help them understand what they can and what they can't afford. And they negotiate with the lenders and the debt collectors on what can be recoverable and what cannot be, because some people are just in too much debt. And so there have been times when I've seen financial counselors help negotiate for debts to be completely waived because there's no way people can afford this. And it just takes years. Uh, it just gives back years of their life uh, to be able to try to get that. Or it might be that it might help them to try to keep the house with a repayment plan. Like, And so that's where I kind of want to be right now because – I mean, according to a study I read in 2019, only one in 10 First Nations peoples are financially secure. And half the study sampled that they had done were in severe financial stress. And I'm talking about people who cannot uh, afford to even save up for anything as well. People who were even taking out loans just to be able to meet their grocery bills. And so that kind of leads them uh, to be reliant on these uh, dodgy uh, junk products. Uh, and so it kind of puts them more in a debt cycle. And that kind of makes them uh, worse off in the situation. You've mentioned your mum a couple of times in talking about your past. And I wondered if you could tell her a little, tell us a little bit more about her. What kind of a person is she and how has she personally influenced your values? Uh, first of all, hi, mum, if you're listening to this. <laughs> uh, please, don't ta- please don't take this so seriously. But uh, my mum was extremely instrumental in getting my um, career together to help me find a path. So she grew up in a, on a, in a tent on a riverbank and she never really knew what money was until she was about 18 years old. She never really held it in her hand until that point in time. She, her family couldn't even afford uh, meat uh, until she was much older as well. She also wanted to be able to be a professional as well. She wanted to be able to learn some amazing, uh, some excellent subjects. But because, uh, because of her age, because of her gender, because of her Aboriginality, the school wouldn't let her do the subjects, and so she could not really do any more education after the age of fourteen. After that, she worked in uh, nursing. She worked in uh, aged care, and then one day she decided to become a lawyer. Because she kind of felt that, well, you know, you can never be too old to uh, start and start a degree. Before that, as well, she also helped start uh, a uh, First Nations uh, nursing association, as well as the First Nations uh, branch of the State Emergency Service and Red Cross. So, you know, she's she gets around. She gets around. That, that's the thing about my mum as well, too, which, which I kind of take is that we have a billion ideas going on in our head, and we always want to be involved in uh, so many different things. Like we just want to be able to get problems uh, solved, um, which kind of makes us pretty annoying. <laughs> but uh, the one thing that uh, kind of like dreads me sometimes is that whenever I come over, we're always talking about legal subjects. And it's like uh, my mom's got all these really amazing ideas about uh, taking on governments for certain things. And uh, But as well, sometimes it's like, well, I want to come home and say hi. <laughs> <laughs> 
let's come back to the really important work that you're doing. Why are financial rights so important for Indigenous people? Uh, the, the stats show that a lot of our First Nations people are in financial hardship. Um, but also, and, all, and the reasons why is because uh, they are often uh, living uh, in poverty. They are often living in areas whereby there's been a hi- hi- history of intergenerational trauma and uh, disenfranchisement and marginalisation, whereby a lot of the communities before didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so they have been left out of that. A, a lot of our families um, haven't really had any experience with money until uh, the 1970s when the uh, when reserves were, were abolished. But even st- if those reserves were abolished, the mentality is still to say the same. And so what we want to be able to do here is that we want to be able to try to um, help people out with their money problems. And so that means that doesn't mean that we lend out money because we're not a lender, but some people do come to speak to us. Uh, our program, Mob Strong Debt Help, is a program is for First Nations people all around Australia to help with their money problems by helping with financial counselling, uh, by trying to be able to help them understand what debts need to be prioritised, what could be negotiated with the lender, uh, whether or not there might be some sort of gam in the loan product that they might be signed up to as well, which happens quite a lot. Some, uh, the lenders have got a, a duty to uh, check to see if they can actually afford the loan in the first place. And a lot of lenders do that. But there are some lenders out there who just want to be able to get the loan because they just get the interest, get the money, and they will sometimes uh, just push people into paying. Uh, and so we really are there to be able to help try and um, help those mob out with, uh, with these money problems before it gets any worse because the worst thing you can do about this is to be able to do nothing about it, and which is understandable because money uh, problems bring about a lot of shame. It, it's, it's so hard for mob to talk about their money problems um, because they want to be able to support their family, want to support their community. They want to be able to show that they are a pillar, um, which is really hard when uh, when some of the elders call as well too because they don't have uh, enough to be able to help make, make ends meet. And so we really want to be able to be there to be able to uh, to help them out with those kind of issues. So you, you paint a very clear picture about sort of the lower baseline that many First Nations families and people are on in relation to their finances. Can you talk a little bit about what you've observed about why it is that First Nations communities are so vulnerable to financial scams or deals that are less than ideal? Yeah, of course. So I think I, f- I find that in my experience um, as an investigator, as a lawyer, as an advocate, is that I feel that Aboriginal communities are seen as a target. They are seen as a target for uh, people on the outside who want to be able to make a fast buck from them. So it, so I've seen uh, issues where it comes to things like uh, private colleges, energy, uh, artwork, um, as well as uh, loans and uh, leases, uh, it just there's just so many different ways how people can just get taken advantage of, and that's because that they first of all is that oftentimes they might live in uh, remote communities whereby they may not have access to other services, uh, or that uh, they also might not have any uh, education on money matters as well too, uh, because again, like I said, they don't have they didn't know much about uh, money issues until like uh, a couple of generations ago. And also, and also as well as that, they have 
this history of intergenerational trauma or intergenerational uh, hardship that's been passed on from one generation to the next. And so what a lot of these uh, predators see is that they see someone who they can try to offer a quick fix to. Um, so you might have, like, say, for example, a door-to-door seller coming to the house and saying that we can actually offer you um, something really good for your immediate needs uh, without telling them all the fine prints and, and the details. And so the mob there, they think that, oh, this is a great deal without understanding, fully understanding what they're getting into. And so they get signed up into something that they had no idea what they were bargaining for. And so that then gives the uh, the seller a quick win, uh, which means that that will then be passed on to other door-to-door sellers and they'll come to the community. It also works, it's now evolved now to uh, social media, whereby a lot of uh like Facebook uh, marketing, you'll see have uh, things like uh, get some fast cash now, like you know, uh, no uh, no credit checks required, or even if you're bankrupt, you can still try to get uh, get loans. And so they they advertise this really easy, quick fix to communities suffering, going through a lot of suffering. And these communities are hoping for a quick fix, and they see that and they think that this is what I want to get. But then they realize they get into something far worse. And of course, one issue that you've looked at very carefully through your work has been the issue of funeral insurance. You've uh, noted how consumer advocates saw a particular operation as a stalking beast of a scam that prowled through Indigenous communities for decades, preying on the cultural need for sorry business. So a very particular um, cultural aspect to it. So what happened there? And can you take us back to the beginning for listeners who aren't aware of this issue? Because it's a pretty jaw-dropping con story. Yes. So you're going to have to get that, that sensor button ready because I could be um, saying some pretty uh, nasty words about okay, all the, this. The producers are on standby. <laughs> so ACBF started off around 30 years ago. And what ha- what had happened was that originally there was um, some Aboriginal directors involved in that back in Armadale in the 1980s. In the, 19- in the early 1990s, some white fellow from England had come over and helped restructure the company into ACBF. And they were going around communities door to door and uh, telling them, hi, I'm from the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund. I'm here to take care of your funerals. And they will come in there with like the name, the logo, a lot of Aboriginal motifs and and, uh, graphics. And sometimes as well, they might come in with Aboriginal sales representatives. And so a lot of the clients we spoke to, they thought that this was an Aboriginal-owned company uh, because, first of all, the name, Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, no different to, say, Aboriginal Legal Service, Aboriginal Medical Service, Aboriginal Employment Service. All these are uh, well-respected Aboriginal-owned organizations. They thought that they were on the same tier. They thought that these, uh, these things would be uh, really helpful for their funerals because oftentimes mob have gone through funerals and it can be extremely expensive and they don't want to pass that hardship onto their families. And so they think that, well, if I were to sign up to this, then my funerals will be taken care of. Again, another quick fix, they think. They think it's, it's going to be something that they trust, something that's going to be affordable, it's going to be great. What they don't tell them is that well, actually, no, we're actually not an Aboriginal-owned organisation. Our directors are not Aboriginal. Not until about 2018 did they have an Aboriginal director. Uh, they also they did, they really hid uh, the fact their leadership uh, quite well in the newsletters, whereby the, whereby the uh, CEO or the chairperson was simply referred to as 
the chairperson. It was some real, like, um, some real shady stuff back in that, during that time as well. So all of this would have been to get the trust of the people that they were again, then going to scam. Exactly right. So they, so they were uh, market. They were uh, marketing directly towards uh, sorry business. They they understood that sorry business was an extremely important cultural concept um, that could be used as a bit of a cash cow for them. And so they market themselves as Aboriginal. They market themselves, uh, which was perceived to be Aboriginal owned, because. People, because uh, they would then get the entire Aboriginal market, so they were uh, a lot of times they went up through uh, Queensland and New South Wales, but they were also going out to places uh, uh, as far as uh, Broome, Derby, uh, down to South Perth, South Australia, Northern Territory, wherever they can go, going door to door to get people signed up, and. The one thing that really kind of got me really twisted was that they loved to, tar- to target mothers. They saw ma- they saw mothers as uh, cash cows because mothers have children, and mothers are always afraid of their children dying without a funeral. And so, oftentimes, our clients reported that whenever the marketer had uh, signed them up, they'll say, "Do you have any children?" and they would then include the children in the in the plan, whereby they'll be paying extra for them. And you're looking at children as young as three months old. There was even one instance whereby uh, they spoke to a pregnant lady, and they waited for her to give birth to then sign her up again. So that so they saw that as a ways for parents to pay extra for their children. But then once the children uh, turned eighteen, uh, the 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 payments go up exponentially, and so what the the, the thing about this funeral fund was that um, the fun, they didn't they weren't aware that the payments would have to go we have to increase as you get older, and the problem with that though is that if you're living on Centrelink benefits that you have limited income, so we've had some clients who are paying almost half their Centrelink payments just to try to be able to keep in this fund because if you miss more than four payments in the calendar year. You're stuffed. You, you don't. Your, your your plan for you and your and your children are cancelled, and all that money you've paid has just gone away. So it's so a lot of people felt like they still had to keep on paying, even when they found out that uh, ACBF wasn't Aboriginal owned. They felt so betrayed and so devastated and so humiliated. Yet they still had to keep on making payments because they felt like, well, I've I've lost like over ten thousand dollars here. I don't want to lose anything more. So they're really actually paying a lot more than what a funeral would actually cost as well. Well, that, that's, that's, the thing, that's the thing as well too because like the, with this uh, fund, they would only get a set benefit uh, benefit amount. So it might be $6,000, $10,000, $12,000. Think about that though is that they weren't told that you could be paying more than what the benefit's worth, uh, especially been paying for every years. If you would imagine a child as young as three months old paying until the age of 60, uh, they're going to be paying many times more than what the benefit's worth. And once they pass away, their family only gets that benefit amount, nothing more than that. Because people thought that... This was like a savings plan. This was like a fund where you put your money in and you get back what you pay out. But they weren't told that this was like you're paying premiums. and They weren't told that you only get the benefit amount once you pass away. So when you uh, became aware of the scam and the, the scope of it, what happened when people went out after the company to try and get money back? Once the company uh, went under in two, March 2022, we received over f- almost 500 phone calls uh, in March in, in March alone, and we're normally suited for just 60 calls a month in our Mob Strong Debt Help Service. What we understand from that was that people were devastated. 
They were broken. They were humiliated. They were upset because they had paid for so many years keeping up their side of the bargain, hoping to be able to have the funerals covered once they passed away. And for them to be upended like this so easily, it just kind of felt like a massive uh, kick in the guts for them. And the worst part about it, though, is that there is no real like uh, there is no real uh, charitable way to be able to help pay for funerals. You might be able to get a thousand dollars here and there from your local Aboriginal land council, or maybe from like a, a little charity fund. But oftentimes, the average cost for a funeral is anywhere for burials anywhere between twelve and twenty thousand dollars, according to AACC market analysis. And so, it's really heartbreaking when you have an elder who has lost out on everything and they're asking me or they're asking our staff what's going to happen when I die so it was a real horrible experience for that mob to go through and we have been taking phone calls from them and we've been using that as fuel as fire to try to lobby the government to be able to do something about this so we formed the Save Sorry Business Coalition, which is coordinated by Bettina Cooper. She is uh, uh, so she is about she's a bow and dig woman, and uh, she's quite deadly. She helped coordinate the other consumer advocates to be able to lobby the government to be able to do something about this. Because if you think about it, this has been happening for thirty years on the federal government's watch. There have been times where the federal government could have put a stop to this uh, going back as far as 2004 or five by simply just making a small amendment to a corporation's law, which, which would have required uh, ACBF to have a license to sell these products. But that wasn't done. But luckily, though, the at that time, we had a new uh, Labor government coming in. Uh, we had Minister Stephen Jones, Minister Linda Burney. They told us that they were on the ball with ACBF that they had knew that this was going to be a disaster and so they wanted and they wanted to help. We've been talking with them for the last uh, 18 months now, trying uh, almost 2 years now to work out a solution here. And so the and so what they've uh, done so far is first of all they have a uh, enduring resolution to help to help those who have lost out. Um, but as well, though, they, for the time being, they have a interim uh, benefit scheme. So if anyone who had a membership up until the 1st of April 2020 were, had, were to pass away, their family can claim through the federal treasury uh, program to get the funeral benefit to help pay for that funeral. So the government will step in as ACBF and pay the benefit for that. That scheme will run till about the 30th of uh, June this year, which is supposed to be a bit of a stopgap to help out those who've lost out, who might have died already. So for those elders who said, what happens if I die? That can be an answer for the time being. But that being said, though, there are tens of thousands of those who have been paying into ACBF for so many years, even, bef uh, even uh, before they, uh, even when they had stopped paying uh, before it went into liquidation, they were paying under a mistaken belief that they were um, that they were Aboriginal owned. They were paying into a company that wasn't properly regulated, um, and they were paying into. They were also paying into this because they were signed up to it through Centrepay. 
you did mention that um, people would have the money taken straight out of their Centrelink payments. Can you talk a little bit about how that worked and what your concerns with about that? So Centrepay works whereby if you are uh, registered for a Centrepay payment for a business, so for example, you, you are uh, paying for rent, the Centrelink um, payments, before it goes into uh, the client's account, the landlord gets a, gets a bite out of that to pay for the rent. Uh, and so Centerpay was first created in 2001 just for things like uh, rent or electricity. But somehow in around that time, ACBF got themselves registered for Centerpay, which meant that they get to have the first bite of a Centerlink payment before they get before uh, they get the money in their account. And so what that meant for ACBF was it was guaranteed money. It was a guaranteed payment. And that meant that if that meant their marketing department, if we were to target people living on Centrelink, we're going to get guaranteed money. People were paying through Centerpay for so many years, even though they can never really afford it in the first place. People were paying up to half of their center of their Centrelink trying to be able to keep this going. And then when the government finally stopped, stepped in after after 15 years of all this going on, uh, when Centerpay was was abolished for ACBF, uh, there was uh, over 4,000 people had uh, had to cancel it because they just couldn't afford it. So these are people who could never afford it, which ACBF knew they couldn't afford it, but they thought, well, doesn't matter because I'm going to get my pay. And you'll see that with other businesses out there whereby they might, they would love to be able to get people sign up through Centerpay because it's guaranteed money, especially as well if like you, if you were to have an agreement on there for uh, more than 12 months, then there's no end date. So you could have a contract, a lease contract there for about, uh, say, two years. Um, but as well, though, if the lease has already reached maximum payment or um, or even if you've given back the object that you leased, technically you could, they can still try to be able to deduct the settling payments from your account. So it's it's a really uh, it's a really uh, interesting instrument uh, that can be used here to take advantage of communities. You talked a bit in this terrible story about how the government regulation failed and you and and that some of some things were sort of subverted with the Centrelink payments. Have these loopholes been closed now? After so many years, uh, these loopholes have finally been closed. So the so ACBF was required to have a financial services license after 2004, after a, a federal court case. But after that, they then created a new company which then fitted a loophole. And it took a it took a royal commission to say that this loophole should have been closed. So that loophole wasn't closed until the first of April twenty twenty. So the same thing is uh, so it's it's just that this could have been uh, this was known to the federal government to be a problem area, and they were trying to be able to see if they can try to be able to. Um, Keep it so. I try to be able to keep the uh, funerals uh, funerals uh, balanced for those people without it being lost out. So they were trying to be able to sort of like try to keep ACBF sort of like on the leash, but at the same time, though, if they were to actually have uh, an Australian financial services license, mm-hmm. like they would never have been able to pass muster. So ACBF, no financial license, uses all these loopholes, mm-hmm. targets mothers misuses the Centrelink payment scheme or starts to kind of uh, use that in as part of its scam. Tell us where the money went because 
As I understand it, they ended up sending payments to Vanuatu and the money has disappeared. What has happened to them? So the official answer is that special liquidators have been appointed to trying to track that down. However, though, from the initial liquidators assessment, what what had happened was in about uh, the early 2000s, uh, the directors of ACBF had formed a uh, insurance uh, company in Vanuatu. Uh, and so what happened is that the money that goes to ACBF would then be paid to the insurance company in Vanuatu, Crown Insurance Services, as like a reinsurance scheme. So if someone were to make a claim for the funeral benefits, they go to ACBF, ACBF goes to Crown Insurance, and Crown Insurance makes a decision saying, well, I guess we could pay this. So they pay the money to ACBF, then who then pays it to the, uh, to the family. Also as well is that the money stays in Vanuatu as well which means that if, say, for example, there were to be an enforcement proceeding to be able to recover money, you then have to be able to start extrajudicial proceedings to be able to help try to enforce that in different uh, different countries. So it makes it much more difficult. And so... And, and so they and so that becomes the uh, the real rub here is that the insur- the liquidators identified that for a period of time this crown insurance company had taken millions of dollars from people of the most in the most desperate of circumstances and only paid a, a fraction of that uh, in uh, funeral benefits so this company was able to get away with millions of dollars of money that people thought had belonged in the funeral fund Where's the industry at now? Are there still companies selling inappropriate funeral insurance targeting First Nations people? Well, ACPF wasn't wasn't the only company who was doing this. There were other uh, funeral insurers out there who had more of a broader approach to trying to be able to marketing, mostly through cold calling. Um, and so what happened is that these companies were identified in the Financial Services Royal Commission in 2018, uh, and ASIC has taken action against a number of them for systemic uh, uncomfortable practices. That being said, though, and so some of these financial services, some of these funeral insurance providers, um, they have uh, made promises for remedy programs, and so we do get uh, they do uh, are they're more willing to negotiate for a resolution for our client. But as well, though, that's for one client. And so it's really more of a case-by-case basis, even though they were marketing this to thousands of uh, First Nations people. Um, so I had one client who was sold a funeral insurance policy, but was then mark- was in cold called and pressed into another funeral insurance policy. And then another company cold called and pressed her into a third funeral insurance policy. So even though she told them that, one, she was living on an age pension, and two, that she was actually has a funeral policy in the first place. And so a lot of people, a lot of mob thought that, well, you can have multiple insurance policies, but there could be a little clause in there that says that, well, instead of getting multiple payments, you might have to, uh, the insurance companies will simply get together and just share the one payment instead. Just finally, for a mob that are out there listening at the moment to you and might be struggling with debt or be worried that they've been scammed or concerned that one of their family members or one of their elders has been scammed, what's your advice to them? First of all, when it comes to scams, anyone can be scammed. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. What a scammer does is that they look into what you want and they try to uh, appeal to that. So it doesn't matter how smart you are. If there's something that you want, they will try to appeal to that to get you to sign up. There should be no shame in that because it happens to anyone.
The second thing as well is that it's important to be able to talk about this as well. You don't have to talk about it with everyone, but someone you know and trust uh, is always important to talk to because if you keep it to yourself, it's going to build up inside you. It's going to be toxic. It's going to erode at you, which is why it's really important to to talk to us. Um, give MobStrong a call. We have a free call number. Uh, it's a nationwide service, 1-800-808-488. Um, have, have a yarn of us. Like, even if you're not the one who's been impacted by it, you might want to be able to talk to us if you've got, uh, like, a grandson or a son or a nephew or a niece who has been signed up to something that's been gammon as well, too. Or if you want to be able to have yarn of us about uh, any money issues as well, because, you know, we like to be able to talk about it. Because the absolute worst thing you can do when it comes to this is nothing. Because when you do nothing, that's what the that's what the predators love the most. Because it means that they can get away with it. It means that they can then target more people, or even worse, they can come back to you again and try to target you again. Sorry, business is obviously a very rich part of our culture. That's very delicate and very sacred. But it's often more expensive than non-Indigenous funerals, remote living, moving bodies to traditional lands and hosting extended family from faraway places. Is that why Indigenous communities have been preyed upon with this funeral insurance? Well, that yes. And so people are desperate to be able to help have funding for that. People are often are willing to be able to take out loans. And so when they see someone who says, you can, we can cover your funeral if you pay $20 per, um, per, per, per fortnight. They see that as a quick fix. But the thing about funeral insurance, though, is that you have to keep making payments until you pass away. It doesn't matter. It could be 20 years and 40 years. You could be paying more than that. And the worst part about it, though, is that as a funeral insurance could have these exclusion clauses whereby they might um, they might uh, stop pay, they might not pay if you die by suicide, which is a very huge thing for First Nations communities and was also a clause in ACBF's terms and conditions. Um, there also might be that uh, they, uh, the premiums would uh, be increasing because of like the age and uh, so the risks, and they weren't told about that. $20 per fortnight can turn to $60 per fortnight. But the worst part about it, though, is that funeral insurance is not appropriate for anyone below, the, below their 50s. Mark, thank you so much for this conversation. As you said, it's something that when it affects people, they're often shamed by. So I think it's really important to shed a light on it and demystify it and let people know that there are things they can do if they do find themselves in that situation. Thank you also for the really important work that you're doing in this space, so needed. And thank you so much for spending time with us on Speaking Out. Thanks, Larissa. That's Mark Holden. The day after this interview was recorded, Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney announced an enduring resolution for people who lost money by the collapse of the insurance provider. The U-Plus support program begins in July and is expected to help around 13,000 people. Mark Holden's lobbying over the years played a role in making this happen. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, ABC RN, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up, we've got Latoya Rule on why she's so keen to push for a nationwide ban on the use of spit hoods. Right now, though, some music from Thelma Plum.
Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Plans to reverse bans on the use of spit hoods on children in the Northern Territory's youth detention centres have been announced by the Territory's opposition if elected in August. The comments have concerned advocates like Latoya Aroha Rule from the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at UTS. Latoya's been advocating to end the use of spit hoods across the country for a number of years. In 2016, her brother died in custody after being restrained by a spit hood in South Australia. Latoya's advocacy ensured that the incident led to widespread reforms, including South Australia becoming the first jurisdiction in Australia to ban the practice. Latoya has been pushing for a nationwide ban ever since, and New South Wales just passed legislation. Latoya, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me. For those who are listening who aren't aware and haven't listened to you when you've been on the program previously, are you able to share with us some of the circumstances surrounding your brother's death? Absolutely. And I guess I just want to preface it with, yeah, a warning for those listening and also for those surviving things like spit hoods and torture devices, really. It can be quite triggering to listen to the the circumstances in which people have died or been injured from these devices. So Wayne, my brother Wayne Fella Morrison, so I'm the youngest of six. Wayne Fella Morrison was 29 years old. He was a dad, an artist and a fisherman. 
He went into custody on remand for six days. When we were in the court with my family, my mum and my sister, um, somebody ran into the court with a note to say that Wayne wouldn't be attending. He was supposed to attend via video link, but instead we've come to find out that in fact he was restrained with a spit hood with flexi cuffs on his wrists and his ankles and placed in the prone position face down in the back of a transport van. There were at least 14 officers involved in his initial restraint with a spit hood and he was put into the van with at least seven officers inside. So we know that these circumstances uh, are not being accounted for. However, legislation like the banning of spit hoods does bring me some kind of peace knowing that other family members and other individuals who are most vulnerable, particularly children, are not going to be spit hooded anymore. As I mentioned earlier, your campaigning about the circumstances of your brother's death led to a ban on spit hoods then. What did it feel like for you when that legislation passed in South Australia? Knowing that there were so many years taken up of campaign advocacy when it was something that could have been done overnight with the flick of a pen and could be done nationally now with the flick of that same pen made it bittersweet. However, the sweet came again because there was a sense of safety and also a sense of victory and restraint of the carceral setting that does the restraining, that does the violence to our people and many people across Australia for the same reasons. Our family members are not violent people, yet in many circumstances, the types of punishment they receive, the types of restraints they receive are very violent. And something like spit hoods is a violent technique used by the state and that is sanctioned by the state. So for those reasons, it was sweet to know that this violent mechanism, this archaic mechanism was being restricted by use and also knowing deep inside that this was going to cause a fire across Australia to have other jurisdictions ban them. Well, speaking of that, New South Wales just changed the law. What did the legislation state and how did it feel when you were sitting in Parliament when the laws passed? So the difference between legislation in South Australia and New South Wales was significant. As an abolitionist, some of our practices is considering how we do restrain the state from its violence and do abolish the violent mechanisms of the state, while also ensuring that we're not increasing the size of that state and its funding and its ability to incarcerate more people. So in saying that, in South Australia, there was a two-year sentence applied for anybody found to be using a spit hood, mainly officers and other people at their place of work who would be sanctioned or approved to use those spit hoods. Whereas in New South Wales, the penalties that do apply as part of the prohibition on spit hoods here mean that instead of somebody receiving a sentence uh, for using a spit hood, instead the penalties are, for instance, at their place of work. So if somebody is found to be using a spit hood, they could lose their job. To me, that's a much better way forward in terms of not increasing the size and the capacity of the state to incarcerate more people, but it's still showing a level of accountability and also the right towards our human right to not have to face any types of violent systems. We also mentioned that while South Australia has the banned, New South Wales has just passed the legislation in the Northern Territory, the use of spit hoods on young people in police custody was outlawed almost 18 months ago, more than five years after they were banned from youth prisons following the recommendations from a Royal Commission. 
But the Territory's opposition has announced plans to reinstate the use of spithoods in the NT if they're elected. How do you react when you hear these kind of comments after all of the activism of getting them banned? Over the last few years, we've gone from the legislative ban in South Australia into a national banned spithoods coalition. That level of work has caused significant uprising of different organisations, individuals, families and groups who've wanted to see this ban. Some of those individuals and groups and families do come from the Northern Territory. Some of those young people have been spit-hooded and are surviving. So to know that, again, particularly for those witnessing the opposition's comments and statements saying that they might implement spit-hoods again, you know, my heart goes out to those young people who are surviving and are now maybe worrying if this is going to happen to them or their family members again, particularly children as young as 10 years old, as we know Australia incarcerates children as young as 10 years old, and that disproportionately spithoods are used against First Nations children in the Northern Territory. So my initial fear is for those young people, particularly those in Dondale, in other youth prisons, and those in uh, police custody and police cells. Of course, as well, my anger is toward the fact that there is ample research, there is ample evidence now. There are police unions, there are correctional officers who support these bans in New South Wales, in South Australia, and indeed across Australia in their own workplaces. So for that evidence to be completely dismissed just doesn't make me feel safe at all, but doesn't make me feel that this type of government is the right one to govern the people of the Northern Territory. More so than that, on principle, I consider that many of these corrections officers are grown men and to want to bring back and advocate for something like a spit hood to be used upon a 10-year-old child, I really question their integrity and I question their capacity in their own workplace to be essentially caring for children. There are those who argue that mechanisms like spit hoods are necessary to protect frontline workers. What's your response to that? There should be adequate PPE in every workplace. We really support and stand behind every person's right to feel safe at work. And part of that is having adequate PPE, personal protective equipment for those frontline workers. When we consider that people like nurses and hospital staff, many don't use spit hoods, many doctors don't use spit hoods, particularly in the age of COVID, in the era of COVID, they're just not necessary at all. And there hasn't been research to show that they do protect against disease or transmission. And in fact, that that messaging is very stigmatising of those in our communities who are most vulnerable to discrimination. And knowing of course, that other officers aren't using them and don't need to use them. In my mind, there's no reason why any other officer across Australia needs to use them. Also knowing that the Australian Federal Police themselves have banned spit hoods. And what would be some of the alternatives in those situations where people have used spit hoods to restrain particularly children? Some of the alternatives to using spit hoods are, of course, training appropriate training, which we continue to hear out of, for instance, death in custody inquests and recommendations by coroners. Of course, de-escalation tactics. For some people, we know that leaving people in a room by themselves to calm themselves down with adequate social supports and people there like their family members and elders is one way that we can avoid the escalation 
of any circumstance, particularly in a police or prison setting. So when those care factors are really neglected, that's when escalation starts. We need people who care for our people to be on the front line working with our people to avoid ridiculous uses and violent uses of state power. We've looked at your advocacy on this issue of spithood bans, but I want to acknowledge that your family had to go through the death in custody of a loved one, and it's made you an advocate in that space more broadly, not just in relation to spithoods. And I wonder if you could give us an overview of what it's like for a family to go through the process of having a death in custody, particularly through the coronial inquest? What have you learnt and I guess how are you supporting others through that process? Good question. Going through an inquest takes a lot of sacrifice, particularly for Aboriginal women, particularly for Aboriginal mums and sisters and aunties, who many times are the frontline workers in our own communities and the carers. We have to give up a lot, including our work, including our schooling, our university degree sometimes, our health management, and the capacity just even to care for ourselves like basic food and necessities, because during the inquest process, we're constantly doing the work of informing people and negotiating and responding and resisting and just being present to listen to such horrible news and then go back to our families or care for them during those times. So... It's quite a sacrifice to sit through an inquest. On top of that, the criminalising aspect that coronial inquests can have for certain family members, particularly Aboriginal men attending, who maybe had been in custody prior, to have to um, negotiate inside such a state space is quite difficult as well. So the harms are toward people's mental health and trauma that already pre-exists these coronial inquest processes can be significant. But most of all, in many ways, actually, the development of communities, the strengthening of groups, the strengthening of our support systems collectively as we show up for each other is one of the beautiful things that can come. And I think the ban on spithoods is one way to show just our resistance, but also our resilience and our capacity to draw closer together in times of need and times of significant trauma and stress. So in some ways, it's been a beautiful experience to grow stronger in my community and with my own family. It strikes me too that a lot of your advocacy isn't just around fixing problems with the system. You call out the inherent problems of the system itself. So you say you argue for abolition in the appropriate ways. And I just wonder what your reflections are then on what you would like to see, acknowledging that you have called the system out as a whole, but from the perspective of what you've been through and what the families you've supported who've also had deaths in custody have been through, what are some of your reflections on the sorts of changes you'd like to see? Definitely funding communities to establish a basis of whether they want to be part of an inquest or not is really important. Many times families are expected to show up despite knowing how traumatic and the sacrifice it's going to take to actually show up. So funding communities, if they do want to attend an inquest, is really important. People like Dajua Foundation are very great at that and other Aboriginal organisations. But having that support outside of just Aboriginal community groups in kind of like paying the rent uh, is really important. 
Alongside that, we know that, especially like yourself, there's many distinguished professors and experts and elders uh, who are very wise in our communities who have the capacity and ability to speak back to these state issues through a way that's informed. So something like a body of First Nations people to come together and decide the futures of how coronial inquests should be run, more so than just a protocol, but considering the investigative process itself so we don't have people like police investigating themselves is something that has been called for for decades now. And also, of course, on a human rights level, there's real need for human rights cases to be expanded because, as we know, we don't work in silos. Myself as a Māori and Aboriginal person, I know that across the Pacific, things like spithoods but also deaths in custody are a, a significant issue and incarceration and listening to other Indigenous nations across the world and, in fact, people of colour, other black people across the world, drawing closer to them and making sure that we're reaching that international stage and advocating for them as well, I think is part of my life's goal. And I hope that that's joined. I hope others would join me in that as well. Well, I find you very inspiring and it's great to get a chance to talk to you about your work, which really is impressive and game-changing. Thank you so much for spending time with us on Speaking Out. Thank you for having me. That's Latoya Rule, PhD candidate, writer and advocate. She's based at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at UTS. That's the show for now. Join us again next time when we bring you more inspirational stories from across Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Sarah Allerley and Jay McAllister. And you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.